This afternoon we have come to Lord's Day 15 in the Catechism. In order to give us some background to that, we're going to read from Acts chapter 14 together, the verses 1 through 23. Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are on a mission trip, and they've come to a place called Iconium. We read that now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So far from our reading, we now turn to the summary of Scripture that we find in Lord's Day 15, with the Catechism as we continue our way through the Apostles' Creed. We've come to the phrase that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. 
The Lord's Day 15, page 529, reads as follows. What do you confess when you say that he suffered? During all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so he freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes. Thereby I am assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we continue our journey through the Apostles' Creed. Some might think the Creed is no longer relevant to the time that we live in, but nothing could be further from the truth. It takes us, the Creed takes us on a journey through time and space, through history and the universe. It begins with creation, begins points us back to Genesis. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. But as soon as you start to think about creation, you also think about the fall. Then you get to Christ and his coming to earth. And now we are slowly, inexorably moving our way to the middle part, the descent into hell. Lord's Day 16. But Christ's suffering did not begin with his descent into hell. It began before that already. And that's what Lord's Day 15 is trying to convey to us during all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ suffered. Lord's Day 16 then asks the question towards the end, since Christ has died, why do we still need to die? And we could apply that question to Lord's Day 15 as well and ask, since Christ has suffered, why do we still need to suffer? And that's what we'll do this afternoon. Since Christ has suffered for us, why do we still need to suffer is a question that we're going to consider. And we'll pay attention to the purpose of his suffering and the purpose of our suffering. So what's the first thing we should remember when we consider this question? The first thing to remember is that all suffering is the result of the fall into sin. In that sense, we all share in a communal responsibility for suffering, even our suffering. We may not be directly responsible for the things that happen to us. Many things that happen to us could not have been prevented by us. But when we consider suffering in general, when we start to consider this question, we also need to begin with our shared humanity. And that shared humanity is tainted by sin. That's why Jesus had to come. So when we consider the purpose of his suffering, we need to begin with that. 
We need to begin with our sin, that our sin caused his suffering. But the message of the Bible is that the triune God wanted to redeem us and to renew us. He does not want to leave us in our suffering. He does not want to leave us in our sins. He didn't want us to perish. He wants us to have eternal life. Both of these factors, our sinfulness and God's desire to save us, come together in Romans 6 verse 23, where we read that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death, by the way, means eternal death. Not just the physical cessation of life, but eternal separation from God's goodness and God's favor. Now, you may not agree with that, Maybe you don't think that all sin should deserve death. Maybe in your mind it, it should be a sliding scale of guilt with eternal death applied to the most extreme cases and everyone else gets let off with a warning. You might not agree with the assessment of the Scriptures, but here's the thing to consider. Jesus did. Jesus did agree. Jesus did because the Scriptures are the Word of God and it is God who ultimately stands behind them. That's why Jesus came into this world. He came to give himself as a ransom. That's how 1 Timothy 2 verse 6 puts it. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. So think about it. When the most holy man who ever lived agrees to the judgment of God and personally submits himself to its verdict, who are we to argue with him? We who live in such a permissive age. There was a story in this weekend Australian on the rising tide of student violence in schools in Victoria. Now the, the story was about Victoria, but the examples probably apply to more, more states. And the writer blamed the permissive culture in which we live. She wrote, quote, For decades, parents have been told to let kids call the shots, make the rules, told don't discipline, don't caution, hug it out, don't do anything that might hurt their feelings, don't parent, end quote. And this is true. As society, we are far too permissive. So we, of all people, are least equipped to tell the difference between right and wrong and to decide what is just and what is unjust. If we really want to learn about right and wrong, we should not take our standard from the world around us, or from what we think it should have been, but we need to look to Christ. We need to learn to confess that Christ suffered. And when you begin to understand that, then everything else falls into place. But why did he suffer? He did it to redeem us. He did it to redeem us from everlasting damnation. Everlasting damnation is God's eternal verdict over our sins. Everlasting damnation means to bear God's wrath forever. It means to spend eternity in hell. And that's what Christ suffered. He suffered to redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation. Body and soul. Look at that phrase. Body and soul includes every aspect of our existence. There's nothing of our personal existence that falls outside of that phrase, body and soul. Because body and soul were together under God's judgment, he had to redeem body and soul together as well. And he did that by suffering in body and soul, and he did it during 
all the time he lived on earth. Why? Why all the time he lived on earth? It's probably the most puzzling phrase in this Lord's Day. Why would Christ suffer during all the time he lived on earth? Because redemption is not just bound by our existence in the moment. It is not just bound by our body and soul. It is also bound by time. Because we don't just occupy space with our body and soul, we occupy time. So Christ had to take on all of our suffering by being born into a complete human life that was subject to all the effects of the fall over time. That's how comprehensive salvation is. That's how thorough it is. And it means that during his life he had the complete range of human experiences. From birth onwards, he already began to experience God's judgment. You think about what the promised land meant. We've talked about the promised land before, a place to enjoy the presence of God forever. And what happens to Jesus? Very soon after he's born, he gets sent out of the promised land. He gets taken away from there. He gets exiled back to Egypt because Herod sought his life. He had to go to Egypt, the symbol of slavery in the Bible. And when he began his ministry, he came to his own, and even his own people did not receive him. So whatever you have experienced, Christ has experienced it as well. Have others been malicious towards you? They were to him as well. Have you been disappointed in others? So was he. Have you suffered disease? So did he. Have you felt anxious? So did he. He experienced every kind of suffering that we could imagine to its fullest extent. Yet, his suffering was completely different from ours. It was different in five points. First, his suffering was undeserved. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. His whole life was lived to atone for our transgressions, body and soul, space and time, including all of his suffering. It was undeserved. Second, his suffering was sacrificial. He lived to present to the Father his entire life as an offering, to present his entire perfect life in its completion, body and soul and space and time, to the Father as one grand offering. One grand sacrifice. Hebrews 9 verse 12 says that he entered once for all into the holy places. Once for all, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Not by the blood of all of those other sacrifices, but by the great sacrifice of himself, his own blood. Third, his suffering was atoning. That means it was meant to take away sin. Romans 3 verse 25 says that God put him forward as a propitiation. A propitiation is an offering that appeases God. He atoned for our sin. Fourth, his suffering was unblemished. In all of his suffering, he did not sin. And here is one of the most striking points of difference between us and Christ. Because all of us have suffered in some way. But how many of us have suffered well? When we suffer, we don't always react well to our circumstances. 
uh, partly because it takes us time to process what's actually happening, to come to terms with it. We might be in denial. We might be in anger. We might um, try to control the situation. Sometimes our reaction is sinful. But Christ's sacrifice included not just giving his body and soul, but to do so with all of his suffering in perfection, that even his reactions to his suffering were perfect from beginning to end. He gave his whole life, body and soul, for the whole extent of his time on earth, with all of his accepting of his suffering and all of his bowing under the judgment of God as one great sacrifice to his Father. And fifth and last, his sacrifice was meritorious. That means that it earned something. His goal was not just to take away the sins of the past. It was not just to take away all that we have done that lies behind us. No, through him, God also wanted to pave the way for the future. In Corinthians 5, verse 21, we read that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, it was not just enough to be morally neutral. He had to make us positively righteous in the eyes of God. If he'd only taken away our sins of the past, then the rest of, the rest of it would still be left up to us. And what would we do? We would keep right on sinning. But the catechism reminds us he has obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Do you know what eternal life means? It means that God wants to be with us again forever. Eternal fellowship with God. He wants to be with us again. He wants to enjoy our presence. He wants us to be his children. He wants us to enter his presence with confidence. That's eternal life. That's what life is. Psalm 36 verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life, and your light do we see light. John 17 verse 3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is life, that you know God. Eternal fellowship with God. That's the ultimate inheritance that Scripture promises us. It's eternal life in the presence of God. Hebrews 9 verse 15 says that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, the promised eternal inheritance, life in the presence of God forever. So, on all of these points, Christ's suffering is categorically different from ours. And that is profoundly reassuring. After all, we don't always know how it will go for us. We see others undergo terrible difficulties in life, or we, we read about maybe about what the martyrs of the past endured, or people today in other countries. And we wonder, how, how will we do when it's our turn? How will we handle suffering when a catastrophe comes? But then we look to the suffering of Christ, and we feel reassured. We are reminded that our salvation does not depend on us. It doesn't depend on our suffering. It does not depend on our reactions. It is entirely a work of God from beginning to end. The gospel of Christ's suffering has a power of its own that makes itself known in difficult situations. 
One example is from our reading as well. We read about how the Jews who opposed Paul and Barnabas um, opposed him at Lystra, and they actually attempted to murder Paul. A concerted effort to, to end the message. Look at verse 19. It said that a Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. This was not um, a mob that formed spontaneously. These were people that had, that had malice in mind, that, that planned this whole thing from beginning to end. They came, they came from Antioch and Iconium. They'd followed him, and they stirred up a crowd and actually stoned him. They intended to murder him, and they got really, really close because they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. If your enemy thinks that you're dead, well, then you're probably pretty close. They're going to make sure that they get the job done right. But see the effect of the gospel in that place. Look at verse 20. It says that the disciples gathered about him. Who are these disciples? Well, it's not Barnabas. This is plural. These are the people that have already converted under his preaching, under their preaching. And they've gathered around. They're concerned about him. They're a physical manifestation of the gospel at work in this heathen place. So right there we see the power of the gospel. Already it transforms people. Already it changes them. Already it converts them even under such difficult circumstances. And these disciples did not run away, which is probably would have been a, a, a tempting thing to do if you have a mob that just stoned your teacher. You know, are you going to be going out when they're still there and surrounding Paul? But they did, they did that. They surrounded him. They brought him back. Paul recovered in the city uh, miraculously quickly, we could add, because he was able to leave the next day after being left for dead the, the day before. He left the city on his own terms. And later he comes back with Barnabas to encourage them. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the effect that it has in the lives of people. But it makes us go back to our main question since Christ has suffered for us, why do we still need to suffer? And we've paid attention to the purpose of his suffering. Let's now focus our attention on the purpose of our suffering. Because this is a mysterious question. This is unfinished business. And it's mysterious even in this passage. There's something that on one level is unsatisfying about this when you, when you read it. Look at verse 10, 14 verse 10. Um, we see Paul here... Um, healing, miraculously healing a man who was crippled from birth and had never walked. Well, this man was the emblem of suffering. He's uh, suffered socially. He suffered physically. He suffered relationally. He's suffered emotionally. He has suffered in every way that you could possibly imagine by, by being a cripple from birth, always being dependent on the people around him. And Paul heals him with one command, and then Paul gets stoned. Why can't Paul heal himself? of his injuries, or all of the times that he was beaten, all of the times that he suffered himself, if he was able to miraculously heal others and, and make all their problems go away, why couldn't he do it to himself? E even with this thorn in the flesh that he had. Remember, he writes about that in Corinthians three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, and the Lord said, no, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Well, there's a clue in this passage as well. Verse 22, we read that Paul and Barnabas came back to the scene of his suffering. 
They returned to Lystra a little bit later, to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And look at this, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What are tribulations? Um, if you were to look up the word in a lexicon, you would say that you would see that it um, means pressure, oppression, or affliction. Now, in Scripture, this word translated as tribulation mainly refers to persecution. It refers to troubles that, that are caused by being a Christian. For example, in Matthew 24, verse 9, Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. But it can also refer to other forms of suffering caused by circumstances. For example, in James 1, verse 27, it says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In Greek, the word translated as affliction in that passage and tribulation in this passage is the same word. So the point is that um, tribulation doesn't only have to refer to persecution. It can also refer to other forms of suffering. But in this passage that we read this afternoon, Acts 14, it clearly refers to persecution. Persecution is a form of suffering that really highlights our relationship with the gospel. Psalm 69 verse 9 says that the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When you're persecuted for your faith, you know you belong with Christ. They lump you together with him. And the world is very good at seeing this. The world is very good at distinguishing this. Those who are true believers, those who take their faith seriously, the world will seek to oppress them like it did with Christ. But here's the thing. It's not just the world that hates us. The catechism reminds us at the very end of, of the catechism, we have three sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh. And all three of these will cause us suffering. So again, although persecution is still a unique form of suffering and that it shows us that we are following Christ, on another level, verse 22 does not just apply to um, people persecuted for their faith, it applies to us all. This phrase, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, on one level applies to us all. Suffering is not something that is limited to a few Christians who are representative of the rest of us. It's something we all need to undergo. Why? Why do we need to suffer? Well, the Apostle Paul writes about that. In um, Peter, sorry, writes about that in his first letter. He says, Now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, suffering of any kind, various trials, brings out the faith that we have and it purifies it. And when our faith is tested under difficult circumstances, then we know what sort of faith we have. There's no other way to know how your faith will, how strong your faith will be under pressure than by going through pressure. How else will you know? And when our faith is tested under those difficult circumstances, we can know for sure that it is genuine. And at the second coming of Christ, everyone 
will see that it was genuine as well. And Christ will be praised. He will be praised. And all of these, these stories of individual believers who suffered, sometimes in obscurity, sometimes from things that other people couldn't relate to. But their faith, the faith that was worked in them by the word of Christ, worked in them through the spirit of Christ, will be shown to be real. And Christ will be glorified. And we will have the enormous satisfaction of knowing that what we believed was real. And that is the great difference between the suffering of believers and unbelievers. You see, a believer and an unbeliever may suffer the same things. They may experience the same diseases. They may experience the same disappointments and so on. But to unbelievers, these are part of God's judgment over their sins working out in their lives. To unbelievers, suffering is part of God's judgment over sin working itself out in their lives. But to believers, it has a purifying, clarifying function in their lives. Now, having said that, not all suffering by believers is of the same kind. Sometimes believers commit sin. They experience suffering as a result of sin as well. For instance, maybe you're a believer who chose to drink drive, and you got caught, and you lost your license, and because you lost your license, you couldn't drive. Because you couldn't drive, you lost your job. Now you're unemployed, and you're in financial trouble. You're suffering. But you're suffering as a result of your own sin. Now that kind of suffering is not the same kind of suffering as being persecuted for the gospel, or stoically, or... um, um, courageously in faith, enduring some trial that God visited on your life. This is, this is suffering that's your own fault. It's your own sin that caused that. But God can still use that. And that's the beauty of God's work in our lives. He can still use even the consequences of our sins to humble us and to teach us. In fact, in Hebrews 12, verse 10, we read that our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that he may, we may share in his holiness. Think about the, the love of God that he takes sinners like us, people that, that often make multiple mistakes, multiple sins, and that he visits the consequences of that on us to chastise us so that we can share in his holiness. That's the ultimate purpose, that we share in his holiness. Revelations 3, verse 19, Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So in that sense, our suffering, even preventable suffering that was the cause of our own poor choices, can still have a purifying effect in our life. It can still be redeemed by the grace of God. Isn't that that such an encouraging thing? That God does not brush us off when we suffer, but that he can use these things to turn us around, to make us ultimately share in his holiness. He can bring our sins to the surface so that we can be humbled and repent from them. Consider God's love and kindness in the lives of his children, that he rebukes and corrects them. So there are many different reasons why people might suffer, why believers might suffer. But there's one reason, one thing that we can absolutely be sure of when we suffer. God will never Make us suffer to atone for our sins. 
He will never suffer. He will never make us suffer to extract payment for sins from us. And we know that from Scripture in many places. One that comes to mind is Hebrews 10 verse 14. About the suffering of Jesus. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Think about that again. Body and soul. During all his life. So for all time, it was a complete thorough Atonement, a complete, thorough redemption. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You might undergo suffering as part of sanctification, but you are already perfect in the eyes of God. You've been perfected in Christ. We are already righteous. There's nothing left to atone for. So any suffering that we experience has to be seen in that broader context of the suffering of Christ. Think of the robber on the cross. You remember that? Luke 23. He says to Jesus, he undergoes a conversion. Right before he dies, he undergoes a conversion. A man in tremendous suffering. And he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today, you will be with me in paradise. And soon after that, Jesus dies. We know from Scripture that Jesus died before these two robbers. So this man continues to suffer. The fact that he converted, the fact that he was promised paradise, made no difference at all in terms of his being on that cross. He was still on that cross. He was still undergoing the physical pain and anguish. But it changed the way that he experienced his suffering. After Jesus made that promise, this man knew that what he was suffering was no longer the consequence of God's wrath on him. It was no longer the beginning of the eternal damnation of his body and soul. Instead, it was a preparation before he entered paradise himself. And that's echoed in verse 22 as well of our passage. Again, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We should expect persecution. We should expect suffering. We should expect these things even though we are believers and we should not be afraid of it. We should not be afraid of it. Our our perception of these things will change because of our faith. And it also reminds us that the devil really is after us. He won't bother with those who are already his. He wants to take out those who are most opposed to him. So what should we do when we experience suffering? What should we do when we doubt? We should look to Christ. We should remember his suffering. And we should faithfully serve God to the best of our capacity under the circumstances. And that capacity will be limited, more limited in some cases than others. Maybe you're somebody who's depressed. Maybe you're anxious. Maybe you're struggling enormously with all sorts of things and you wonder, where is God in this? You feel the devil oppressing you. And maybe you wonder, what should I do? Well, be faithful to the best of your capacity. And maybe on some days that will mean that the best that you can do on that day is to get out of bed. But if that's what God gave you the strength and the energy for, that's what you do. Don't compare yourself to other people. 
Just think about what is God calling me to do in this moment. And think about the suffering of Christ. The Catechism puts it well when it says that we can be assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on us. For a crucified one was cursed by God. Christ will hold on to us. We should remember the words of Lord's Day 10. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. It's God's providence. The the broader framework of perseverance, of God's providence, of God sustaining us, of persevering us in election are, are all factors here. And all of our suffering is located in that. It does not have a life of its own. It functions in the broader framework of God's providence and of his election. And he will fulfill his promises to us. He will not let us go. He is so in control of all things that he works them to our benefit. So we should expect many tribulations, but there is a purpose to them because we are entering the kingdom of God. And that means that there is an end. Christian life is linear. It goes in one direction and there is a kingdom at the end which we will all inherit. So the things that happen to us are not random And we lose sight of that sometimes. And maybe that's the most discouraging thing about suffering. When it happens, it feels random. You leave for work, an extra minute later, you get into a car accident. And you suffer. And it feels so random. And that's the most discouraging part of suffering. And we revisit. We should have done things differently. We could have done things differently. Well... We can throw us off, but when we've lost our bearings, remember this text, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It is not suggesting to us that we earn heaven by suffering. That has never been suggested anywhere in Scripture. Instead, what it tells us is that the road to heaven is paved. It's paved with suffering. In other words, when you suffer, this is not a detour. This is the journey that God and his providence has put you on. Maybe at this time you're not enduring persecution. You're not suffering. Things are going well. That's God's gift to you. To think about these things at your leisure. To build yourself up in your faith so that when the time of testing comes, you'll be ready. You should prepare yourself mentally for the times when you will suffer. And maybe that thought fills you with intimidation, but it shouldn't because remember, The worst was already suffered by Christ. That His suffering is the outer limit. Fear comes from thinking that your suffering has no limit, that there's no limit to the pain that we will undergo, but there is a limit. The limit is Christ and His suffering, and that was for us. The ultimate goal of suffering is to conform us to the image of Christ. Romans 8 verse 29 says that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Is that our desire? Do we want to be conformed to the image of Christ more than anything else? Or would we like to be in control of the process, this forming process? Well, then the shaping, if we were in control, then the shaping of God's image in us would follow the lines that we want for it. And then it stops being God's image. So there is no other way. There is no other way. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. All suffering is a temporary stage on the road of faith. 
and it is not a road that we have to walk alone. It's a road that we walk together as church community. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So let's do this together. Let's not be afraid of each other's suffering. Some kinds of suffering we tend to back away from. In our free reform circles, we do well when somebody is physically incapacitated. If, for example, a young mother unexpectedly had to undergo surgery or something like that, well, uh, generally, once the broader uh, church community becomes aware such a person is flooded with meals, we set up a meal train, we take care of them until they're back on their feet. It's a wonderful thing, but what about someone who struggles with depression? What about someone whose um, marriage is falling apart? Then others tend to take a step back. Let's not do that. Let's not take that step back. Instead, let's do what the apostles did in verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's what they did. They strengthened the souls of the disciples. They encouraged them to continue in the faith. And they reminded them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So we visit each other to encourage each other. And that does not mean that you visit people to tell them all about how bad your own experience was. And you're, you know, I had a surgery that was almost the same as yours. And you should have heard my story of recovery. And that is not the sort of visit that people want or need. That's not encouraging them in the faith. We point each other to Christ. We encourage each other to continue in the faith and build each other up. And in the end, we may not receive the answers that we want. Job didn't either after everything that happened to him, but he knew that the Lord was there and he was encouraged. And so will we be even in the midst of our suffering. Amen.